0: Let's continue to worship the Lord through uh, studying His Word. I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 18. The passage that was just read to us will start in, in verse 18. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you to uh, reflect on me. If you've ever met or known anybody that meets this description, uh, seldom correct, but never in doubt. If you don't know somebody like this, you, you might be this person. Uh, Uh, I I had never heard this phrase until I was in college and I was talking with a buddy of mine about another friend of ours trying to describe this phenomenon and he, he said, this is what my dad would say. He's seldom correct, never in doubt. And I was like, Th- that is it, that is the perfect encapsulation of, of this type of person. And this, I, I don't wanna like, if, if that's you, it's okay. If we're not trying to demonize, it can be harmless. I think it can be fun when it's, you know, like a couple who's trying to drive somewhere and it's like, can we just pull out the directions on the phone? And the guy, let's be honest, is the guy who's like, no, no, like I got it. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, you're off some beaten path somewhere, you're lost. You know, like, I guess we should probably look at the phone. Uh, you, were, you, were, you were never in doubt but you had no idea where you are going. Uh, and, and, and other harmless uh, instances like that where seldom correct but never in doubt is not that problematic. But uh, the more serious the issue gets, the more important um, correctness gets, doesn't it? I mean, you don't want your surgeon to be that kind of person, do you? To just go in there real confident, uh, seldom correct, never in doubt. That is not, that is not a good surgeon students if you're trying to find buddies for a, stu- uh, for, for a study group seldom correct but never in doubt is not a good study group participant because they're just gonna wait here's the answer yes just trust me you get in the test you find out that was not the right answer that's not even the right class okay you're just wrong we're on the wrong planet here you don't want your tax person to be seldom correct but never in doubt if you're traveling internationally a place where you don't speak the language and it's just everything is different you don't wanna be traveling with a seldom correct but never in doubt person. There's just certain circumstances where having that kind of disposition can get you into some real, real trouble. And so on, on matters, uh, as matters get more important, the, the confidence is essential. It's really helpful to have somebody who's confident, but confidence is helpful while, but insufficient. It is not sufficient to have somebody who is com- confident. You need somebody who is also competent. Nowhere do we get more confident but amazingly wrong people than when we're talking about spiritual things. People will plow into conversations about spiritual things. Never in doubt, but often uh, very, very wrong. We get platitudes when someone is lost, that they're in a better place or they're looking down, you know, with their angel wings or something, We get people who give themselves some level of comfort that they did their one good deed for the today, or they're wrestling with how good is good enough and they say, well, at least I'm not Hitler. Or they try to make decisions and just ask the question, what would make me happy? Well, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? And so I'll just go down that path. Obviously, it's the correct one. God wants me to be happy, that would make me happy. A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. A little math there for math people. In the text we're looking at today, we meet a man whose confidence in himself sets him up for a tremendous disappointment, perhaps about the most important topic that any of us could possibly imagine. How does one enter the kingdom of God? I challenge you to think of what could possibly be a more important question. How does one, in his language, inherit eternal life? How is one saved? There is no more important question. And can you think about how unhelpful it would be to have this dialogue with somebody who is seldom correct, but never in doubt. You don't wanna get this one wrong. The entrance into the kingdom of God is the question of all questions. And the, the discussion, the broader discussion of the kingdom of God has been a theme for, of ours for the last several weeks. Luke's been talking about it for a couple chapters now. We learned that the kingdom of God is already here. It's already come in the person of Jesus Christ, but it's also not yet in the sense of its final fulfillment or consummation has not yet finally developed. Jesus has not come back to, to completely establish his universal rule. We learned that while we wait for Jesus to come back and do that, that we are to be diligent and to to be watchful and to be faithful and perhaps most of all, to be prayerful. And we learned that if we are to enter the kingdom of God, we enter as broken sinners, needy sinners, and needy children. We do not enter as self-righteous Pharisees. It's on the heels of these interactions and stories that Jesus has been telling about the kingdom of God that we get this encounter between Jesus and a, a ruler. He is a ruler indicating that he is of some kind of high status or position. We don't really know a whole lot else. Uh, it, it's just a generic term for someone who's, who's kind of important. We do know from this passage that he's very rich and from a par- parallel passage in Matthew's gospel that he was probably pretty young. This is the, uh, the, the, the famous story of the rich young ruler. And as we see this man strutting into this conversation, not very correct, but also not very much in doubt. Uh, I want us to develop, walk, walk through it in three sections that I'm just gonna give quick headings to. The first section, we see a misunderstanding. The second section, we're gonna see a warning And in the third section, we're gonna see a promise, okay? So a misunderstanding, a warning, and then a promise in this interaction with this young ruler. First, the misunderstanding. The misunderstanding has to do with what is required for someone to enter into the kingdom of God or to be saved. We've got that same concept referenced multiple times. Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God. The young man asks a very obviously important question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it might seem that he is coming as a humble inquirer But why would I describe him as seldom correct but never endowed if he's coming here and the first thing out of his mouth is, Jesus, can you help me out? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But there's even embedded into his question so many problems. You just can imagine Jesus sitting there when he's like, good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And he's just like, okay. I'm gonna stop you right there. Even the way he frames the question betrays that this man is sorely, mistaken. Even his question makes a lot of assumptions about the kingdom of God that need to be corrected or tweaked or refined. This man has been making a series of assumptions that betray a deep misunderstanding about himself and about God and about salvation and about what it looks like to be faithful. He understands something, notice this, as simple and as basic as the idea of goodness. And Jesus calls him out for it. Before even addressing the man's question, Jesus begins to unpack the question, to pick it apart. He says, uh, first of all, uh, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This man had come to Jesus calling him good teacher. This was not a, a common way to address a Jewish leader. It would have been a very kind of bold act of flattery. Because the idea of goodness, the idea of moral purity was something that every Jew in the first century would have known really properly belongs to God and God alone. You don't just walk around slinging the G word, okay? You don't just start handing out good, it's not just, hey, that's a good friend or that's a good brother or something like that. He did a good thing. The idea of goodness was something you are taking somebody from wherever that they're at or wherever, whatever they're doing and they're saying, you know what that looks like? That looks like God himself. And so this man walks up to Jesus and in an effort to kind of uh, uh, flatter him and to make himself uh, kind of friendly towards Jesus, he says, you're, you're a good teacher. But in doing so, he is revealing a kind of carelessness with the very concept of what it means to be good. And Jesus is trying to tell him, you are by the very just words that you're using showing you probably don't understand goodness and you probably don't understand God himself. You have entered into this dialogue. You've just barreled in like a bull in a china shop and from the get go, you are on the wrong track. Good teacher and he says, man, you you do not understand the words you are saying. Now the irony here is he was actually quite correct. Jesus is a good teacher. And even if we take it in this first century Jewish sense of saying this is a good teacher, a good one who is good like a God is, this, this man had stumbled into being right about that, but that's clearly not what he is intended here. Instead, what he's trying to do is butter Jesus up to see if he can just say, look, I've got everything covered. I just need to get a few more tips and tricks and then we'll, I'll be on my way. So this man understands, misunderstands goodness. He misunderstands God himself. He misunderstands moral purity and because of all All of that, he misunderstands himself. It's part of this, right? He doesn't just misunderstand God. It's himself in relation to God that gets all out of whack. You don't understand God and his goodness. How are you supposed to understand yourself? And so Jesus goes on to answer the question with portions of the 10 commandments. Well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, mother. Every first century Jew would have been able to rattle these off like no problem. He was like, yes, this is, these are the big 10 right here. And then he lists some commandments, probably from the, the, the second tablet of the 10 commandments that have to do primarily with the way we relate to one another. And so this, this young man, probably because he is in some real sense, a moral guy is able to say, verse 21, all these I have kept from my youth. I don't think we should read this guy as kind of a conniving liar. He just knows he's got like a drug hustle over here on the side. No, but I'm good. That's not what he's doing. He's actually been a good guy and he's looking at the list of 10 commandments and he's like, everybody, like I, haven't, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't stealed. I haven't borne false witness. I, I love my mom and dad. Like, I, check. But he's totally missing the point. It's almost as though right after Jesus makes clear that no one is good, but God alone, that this guy, after hearing the 10 commandments is like, but maybe me too, I'm good too, I've got it. I mean, you just listen, what what does God require of me? I've done those things, I mean, God is good. Okay, good teacher, you don't wanna be called good, but can can I be thrown in there? This guy is like the the Spider-Man meme. You guys have seen this, right? Where there's like three Spider-Man and they're all doing this thing right here. It's like, I see, we're all the same. This guy looks at God and is like, me and you? Are we tracking? And it's actually because he misunderstands at a fundamental level, the holiness of God and what it means to be good that he can look at himself and say, yeah, I think I'm good too. I can look at myself and say, yeah, I have some marker of moral purity in myself that measures up in some way with the character of God. And so Jesus has to show him the fullness of how badly he is misunderstanding this. He's misunderstood goodness, he's misunderstood God, he's misunderstood himself, and because of all that, he misunderstands the answer to his question about everything it takes to enter the kingdom of God. He misunderstands how this kingdom works. Look at what Jesus says in in verse 22. And when Jesus heard this, this, this amazing claim, I've kept all these from my youth. He says, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. The story takes a turn here, doesn't it? This man barrels in, Obviously not very correct, but not not really having an ounce of doubt in himself. And then Jesus throws a curveball. Alright, you've 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 checked all the boxes, and Jesus is intent to show this man that though you are righteous in your own eyes, you've checked all the boxes, you've been morally upright in some sense, you, sir, are not truly good. I just wanna pause right here and say, it is really important that all of us come to this realization at some point or another, isn't it? We really want to believe like this this man that we are not that bad. Good might be a little strong, but not that bad. And notice how this this man is being driven by Jesus to realize every conception you have about your goodness is so severely mistaken in its sense of scale. Your consideration that you too are good, that you have kept all these things, you've been morally upright, you've been a good person, you do not realize how truly off from the kingdom you are. I mean, though th- think about it, though this guy lacked nothing, he lacked nothing materially, he lacked nothing religiously, Jesus boldly states, you still lack. That's the word he uses here. And I think it's really interesting because what's kind of the one characteristic of rich people? They don't lack anything. What's the one characteristic of morally upright people? They lack no good deed. They have no need. And Jesus is saying, you don't realize how desperate your situation is. You might say that the thing that he lacked was lack. Lack. He was too self-sufficient, he was too capable, he was too self-reliant to see in his own life his desperate need for someone outside of himself, not someone outside of himself to bring him into the kingdom of God. Not something that he could do to earn the kingdom of God, but somebody else who could stoop down in his state of neediness and draw him up into the kingdom of God. He he misunderstands everything about this because he refused to understand that he does not come to the kingdom of God as one who earns a right, but one who is graciously given a spot by somebody else who's earned it. In order to do this, Jesus goes for his heart. He doesn't just go for the list of commandments that he's kept or not kept. He goes for the thing in his heart that he loved more than anything else and that he trusted more than anything else. He goes after his money. Now, I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is that a good work that we can do to enter the kingdom of God is to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. I think that would be uh, over-interpreting this text, okay? He is not saying, here, your, your question is what can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Well, here's the next thing to do. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will earn your right, your, your spot in the kingdom of God what he's doing is he's showing this man that entering the kingdom is impossible by simply keeping commands. This man will not enter the kingdom of God by simply keeping commands, even this command. This man will not earn the right into the kingdom of God by keeping this command. What this man needs is a heart that no longer finds security and satisfaction and and value in the stuff that he has, but instead redirects all of that. Every ounce of trust and reliance and confidence needs to be taken off of himself and it needs to be taken off of the stuff he has and it needs to be placed on the Lord Jesus himself. That is how we enter the kingdom of God. Unbeliever, this is the way that you find eternal life in Christ Jesus. It is to stop looking in yourself. There is nothing you can do to earn acceptance by a holy God or to earn entry into his kingdom. There is no amount of money. There is no amount of status. There is no amount of moral good deeds that you can do to qualify for the kingdom. But what you can do is recognize you come as a beggar, needing, destitute. You come utterly dependent on someone outside of yourself who is able to give you entrance into the kingdom of God. The ruler didn't have a morality problem. He had a trust problem. His problem wasn't obedience, it was devotion. It was a reliance on self and stuff that distracted him from the provision that was available to him in the Lord Jesus. And we need to never move past. It's interesting in some of the kind of key gospel passages throughout the scriptures, the, the, uh, uh, the apostle Paul in particular is so intent on reminding us that if we enter the kingdom, it is decidedly not because of our works. That is like a key part of the gospel. Your works are a negative benefit to entering the kingdom of God. They are, they are a liability. They are a roadblock to you entering the kingdom of God. If you're just kind of going down the list saying, what have I done? How good have I been? How faithful have I shown myself to be? Maybe because of all these things, God will love me or he will keep loving me. I just want you to know, friend or brother and sister, your works are a negative benefit when it comes to being accepted by God. But Jesus is trying to free this man up. He's not just trying to crush him. He's trying to say the life that you long for is available to you. But you've misunderstood where to find it. It's not going to be found in your riches. It's not gonna be found in yourself. It's going to be found in Jesus. And so much of what it means to come to Christ, to come into the kingdom of God, is to recognize we bring nothing. We have nothing. We come as destitute, afflicted. We come as sinners, rebellious against this God, and yet in his grace and in his mercy, he welcomes us in. That is how we enter into the kingdom of God. So we misunderstand so much about what it looks like to enter, and then Jesus pivots from there to a warning. Verses 24 through 27, we see a little bit of a warning. Jesus takes this man's reaction as an opportunity to teach his disciples. Notice that the man doesn't heed the invitation that Jesus gives. He says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. You'll store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I, I think that's a, Jesus is not saying this is a bad investment. He's actually saying, this is a pretty great investment. Give it away now and store up for yourselves treasures for eternity. Like he's not, he's not just trying to like beat the guy down. He's trying to say like, I'm trying to help you get what you want. Here's, here's what it's gonna look like. And he invites this man, come follow me as one who is needy, who is desperate, who is, who is devoted to, to me. And this man turns away because he was very rich and that was going to cost him a lot. And so Jesus in verse 24, seeing that he had become sad, says, how, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus takes this opportunity to remind us in in response or in reaction to this man walking away that there are real spiritual dangers in our lives. Real spiritual dangers. barriers to us entering the kingdom of God. And I want, us to, I want us to heed this warning in a general sense and in a specific sense, okay? In a general sense, anything that grips our heart, like this man's riches did his, or anything that gives a, is kind of our source of confidence, like riches were for this man, is a grave spiritual danger to you brother or sister. Friend, if you are relying on anything, it could be be riches, it could be family history. There might be kids in the room who think that you're good. If you're relying on your family history because you come from a good family, trust me, that will not help you enter the kingdom of God. You might be relying on your status, maybe your education, your learning, your expertise. Maybe those are the things in which you really find a sense of of confidence and security, a sense of, of dependability. I've got this. That should always be this this red flag that goes up in our our, our hearts. This is a thing that I am running to, I am resting in, I am finding comfort and satisfaction in, other than the Lord Jesus. And it is a threat to my spiritual health. I think we should be careful, it's just a kind of a, a discipleship aside, we should be careful to take those things that are threats to us and absolutize them for everybody. You know, for you, it might be certain kinds of food that you run to, and you should not eat Oreos. Well, maybe too close to home there. Uh, (laughs) Not because there's anything wrong with Oreos, amen? Uh, (laughs) But because you run to them as a source of comfort and satisfaction that threatens you resting in the Lord Jesus. But it would be unwise for you then to turn to your brother and sister and say, you guys shouldn't eat Oreos. You guys, you got to get the picture there? So we're gonna be careful making rules for everybody else. But we have to be diligent to recognize our heart is so fickle. We want to find other things to run to and to find satisfaction in and comfort and security. Calvin famously said, our hearts are idle factories. That's what he's talking about here. We run to other things to worship them and devote ourselves to them. And Jesus is saying, anything like that, you gotta get it out of your life. I am the source of comfort and satisfaction and security and salvation. That's what he's, he's inviting them to. So there's the general application. Friend, anything in your life that is a threat to the Lordship, the functional Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, you should, con- you should beware of it and you should go to war with it but there's also a specific warning here. He doesn't just talk about general idolatries, he talks about riches. And it's just a reality that wealth, money is dangerous. Wealth, riches is so dangerous to our spiritual health. It's so dangerous that he's willing to give this ridiculous comparison about the danger. I mean, come on. there has been people who've talked about the, 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 the camel and the eye of the needle. Maybe the, the, the eye of the needle is like this gate in Jerusalem. And so, but it was a small gate. I don't know, maybe it was for donkeys and it was hard to get camels. And that is way overinterpreting it. You've seen a camel before, right? Have you seen a needle? Go to town. <laughs> like, I will take you out to lunch. If you can get a camel through the eye of, I know, I know. Uh, Generous guy. (laughs) Um, It it doesn't work. You're getting the right thing. If you're like, that shouldn't happen. You're right, it's not gonna happen. And Jesus comes back and says, it's gonna be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Riches are so dangerous. And this is a theme in Jesus' teaching. Let me just give you two examples. In, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus would say, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. You can't worship two gods. You cannot serve God and money. And what he's saying here is money has this uncanny ability to be elevated in our hearts and our minds and our lives to where when we are offered the choice between God and money, we are kind of hesitate and go, well. And that's a red flag for all of us. It's what happened to this this rich man. He was given a choice. You can serve God or you can serve money. And this man, like, let's not throw stones at him. He walks away because the money was too alluring. It was too securing for him. Jesus is saying, you, you guys need to understand, money in and of itself is not bad. But I will say this, money in and of itself is dangerous, Christians. It is so dangerous to your spiritual health. And you might be sitting there thinking, no, I think I've got a handle on the money thing. I really don't think it's an idol, yellow flag. Like this is like having like a tiger in your backyard that you're just like, well, I've got a fence. And I'm sure if I go cut the grass, it won't really like hurt me. And you just go out and you cut and you cut and you cut. And at some point the tiger mauls you. And then everybody zooms out like, what is a tiger in your backyard? Like, we play with riches in this life to our own spiritual detriments. Think about the parable of the sower that we've already preached through in Luke chapter eight. There's, there's, this is the parable of the sower, the parable of the seeds, where the seed is thrown on multiple different kinds of soil. And depending on the kind of soil it is, the, the, the word, the word of God, the, the seed bears different kinds of fruit. And I don't, know, don't wanna go through the whole thing, but do you remember the third soil? The third soil was when the seed fell on, oh, sorry, the, yeah, the, the, the seed fell on soil that had weeds in it. And when Jesus is explaining this parable, he says, what's happened here is the word of God has taken root in somebody's life. But over time, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches, it, it, it crowds out the word and it suffocates it and it stamps it down. Jesus is very consistent in telling us, riches are so dangerous. It will compete for your affections. It will compete for your confidence. It will compete for your security. And we in our fallen state are going to be tempted to find more comfort and security in what we have than in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is going to happen. And so because of that, because of that, Jesus is saying, be careful. Now, I wanna recognize the problem is not the money. Like money is not evil. It's just a tool. But but we, to our own detriment, will think that uh, we don't need to heed this warning. Money is not something you have to run away from. You are not sinful if you have money. I mean, you're sinful, but it's not because you have money, okay? Uh, money isn't what makes you sinful. But we need to heed this warning money has an incredible ability to grab at our hearts. Now, no one is ever going to enter the kingdom of God because they gave all their money away. You can't give enough money away to earn yourself entrance into the presence of God. but there will be many who are kept from the presence of God because they never learned how to be truly desperate for help, for security, for salvation because they had all that they needed in the things of this life. So what do you do with this? You need to ask your question. Generally speaking, what has a grip on your heart? What is the equivalent of money in your life? It could be money, it could be something else. Ask the question, what is it that redirects your gaze off of the Lord Jesus, off of what God has done for you in Christ and instead says, I got, leads you to say, I got this. Whatever that thing is, brother, sister, friend, just know that thing cannot save you. It will disappoint you. It will fall short. And And you might need to consider what it looks like to cut it out, to crucify it. I mean, let's not read this as like, surely Jesus isn't saying give away all his money. I think he's saying give away all his money. Why? Because the money was the idol that he was chasing after. And you might have a different one. Now, that's the general application. What is it for you? Let's get specific. Brothers, sisters, friends, we, we live in 21st century America. We are among the wealthiest people who have ever walked the face of this planet. You might not be rich by 21st century America standards, but we collectively, almost to the one of us, are incredibly wealthy. It's okay if your 401k is not, you know, topping charts. You should still probably ask the question, do riches, do the things of this life have a grip on my heart to where I am functionally going to it for security, for salvation, for rescue, And let's beware. And then let's heed Jesus's invitation to do something with the money. Let's do something with it. You see what he tells the the, the man here? Give it away and earn treasures. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Like it will last forever there. Invest it, he's saying, by giving it away. And so brothers and sisters, the, the appropriate response for you might mean to like give away some cash. And there are all kinds of folks that you can give it to the poor, you can give it to organizations that are hurting, or, sorry, not hurting the poor, helping the poor, uh, who are helping the hurting uh, to make sure you're paying attention, who those are coming alongside. You can give it to the church. Next week, we're gonna start an offering to, to give towards missions, international church planning, making disciples among all nations. Let's be generous in the way we give, our, our, not, uh, give away our money, not to earn anything from the Lord, but to show the Lord is everything that we need and this stuff does not have a grip on our heart, okay? Now, the disciples are a little confused because this man seemed to be the ideal candidate for someone to enter the kingdom of God. They did in fact believe or were inclined to believe that riches were a sign of blessing from God. And so in verse 26, they say, those who heard this said, then who can be saved? If if this guy is not a good candidate, then like we're in trouble. And this this is great, I love Jesus' response. You need to take your eyes off the candidate. Your salvation is not gonna be found in how good he is, how qualified he is, how good you are, how qualified you are. Your salvation is not gonna be found in the quality of the candidate. It's gonna be found in the power of the one who is doing the saving. He's saying, you, you don't make the same mistake. This guy was looking at himself, what can I do? He was looking at his riches, what do I have? And he was saying, surely I'm a good candidate for the kingdom of God. And the problem is, is that he had taken his eyes off of the Lord to where he didn't even really understand God and he didn't understand himself. And so he'd missed the kingdom entirely. And the disciples are saying, well, if this guy's not a good candidate, who will be a good candidate? And he's saying, please stop looking at the candidates. And instead look at the one who's doing the saving. He is the one who is able to save. This is why there will be rich people, people who were rich in heaven. Because their riches don't disqualify them. Even a rich, it says it's harder for a camel to make its way through the eye, eye of a, uh, a needle. With God, it is possible. At least, you sit in a place of worship. You might be here saying, I could never, I could never be good enough. I could never be desperate enough. I could never do all the right things enough. And I just, there are all kinds of objections about why you're not a good candidate for salvation. And I just wanna encourage you, friend, brother, sister, take your eyes off yourself. And instead, gaze on the Lord Jesus and see that you are not qualified, but he is qualified. You have not done all the right things. He has done all the right things. You cannot earn your way in. He is inviting you in, in his grace and in his mercy. This is the, the joy of salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. If I have to tell you, do better, shape up, turn over a new leaf, try harder, you will never succeed. But if I can tell you there is a God with whom salvation of sinners is possible and accomplished, that is good news. And so Jesus says, look, you gotta take your eyes off yourself. And instead look to the Lord who is sufficient, who is qualified, who is able to save. And it's there that he meets the disciples, not just with a warning, but with a word of promise. This last section, almost sheepishly, Peter tries to understand where they stand, where the disciples stand in all this. Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in, the, in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter isn't bragging. He's stating facts. The kind of total abandonment and desperation you're talking about, Jesus, we've done that. We're all in on Jesus. We've sacrificed everything. We've put all our cards on him. Are we good? Is is that right? Is it gonna be worth it? These disciples just watch the most qualified disciple, candidate in all of history be turned away, and they're wondering, should we be worried? And Jesus gives them just what they need. He gives them a word of comfort and a word of promise. I think it can be boiled down to this. No matter what you give up to follow Jesus, no matter what you give up to follow Jesus, hear Jesus say it, hear me say it, hear the voices of your brothers and sisters around you say it, it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it. There is no sacrifice you can come up with that you will not, from the age to come, looking back with eternal life in your pocket, say, I'm not sure it was worth it. Looking at the face of Jesus, worshiping with the saints, you will not wonder, was it all worth it? He says, he says, we left house for the disciples. That was security. It was a job. It was stability. It was family faithfulness. We left all that to follow you, Jesus. Was it worth it? And he says, you don't need to worry. You're gonna get everything you need. I, I love uh, family, children. We could talk more about all, what all these means, but the point is all of these things, anybody who left any of these things, he says many times more in this time, isn't that amazing? Jesus doesn't just say, keep your eyes on heaven. He says, in this life, you will receive more than you ever needed to be faithful. And more than you ever gave up, you will receive in this life. That is such good news. It reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where the apostle Paul reminds us that he, him, he who gave him uh, up his own son for you, for me, how will he withhold anything we need? He did not spare sending his son to die for you. Like how much does the Lord love you? How committed is he to you? He sent his child to die for you. You think he's gonna withhold any good thing? He will withhold no good thing that you need in this life. And in the age to come, you will receive eternal life. The passage concludes where it began. A man seeking to earn eternal life walks away disillusioned. And the ones who went all in on Jesus, who sacrificed everything, are promised there from the Lord himself. You will not be disappointed. You will not be let down and the question, was it all worth it, will be answered with a resounding yes. Business person, employee, who loses a job or maybe a promotion because you did not participate in some unethical practice because you're a follower of Jesus. You're sacrificing to follow Jesus in this life. And I wanna remind you, he withholds no good thing from those who follow him. You might be looking at the promotion, you might be looking at that job, and you say, man, I just, I needed that thing. He withholds no good thing that you need. And when you look back on it from eternity, you will say it was worth it. He was worth it. Missionaries who are preparing to sell everything and go to the mission field to say goodbye to family, to say goodbye to friends, say goodbye to security. Your life is about to get incredibly difficult And I want you to know that Jesus withholds no good thing. He will provide you everything you need in this life, many times more in the age to come, eternal life. And when you're sitting there in the age to come, you will look back and say, it was all worth it. Brothers and sisters who are single, longing to be married, frustrated by the fact that you can't find faithful brothers and sisters to marry, and you're tempted, you're inclined to broaden the scope and say, maybe I could just find somebody who's a good good person. They might not believe in Jesus, but, but surely that's not that bad. You're asking yourself the question, is Jesus worth it? Don't I deserve better than this? And I wanna tell you, brother, sister, He withholds no good thing from you. He withholds nothing that you need. Every good thing you need in this life, he richly provides. And in the age to come, eternal life. From which vantage point you will look back and say, Jesus was totally worth it. Brother and sister who knows that you're gonna be single your whole life because the only people you're attracted to are people of the same sex. And you just want a family. But you know that following Jesus means you give that up. I want to promise you, based on what Jesus is telling us here, he withholds no good thing from you. Everything you need in this life, he richly provides for his people. In the age to come, you will have eternal life with Jesus. And from that vantage point, you will be asked, was it worth it? And with a resounding voice, with throngs and throngs of other saints, you will say, it was so worth it. He was so worth it to be faithful in this life and to say no to so many things and to sacrifice so many things. There was never, there, I should never have doubted whether or not he was worth it. I just want you to know he is promising his humble, hurting disciples, are you worth it, Jesus? And Jesus is standing there and he's not shaming them for asking the question. He's saying, yes, I am worth it. And you will see, you will see it in this life and you will see it in the life to come. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. We serve a faithful and loving savior. And so let me just ask a few questions. What what are you relying on? For your standing before an infinitely holy God. If it is yourself, it is your riches, it is your accomplishments, you need to know those things cannot and will not bring you into the kingdom of God. Only Jesus can do that. Second, what, what kind of hope, confidence, assurance, and security are you finding in your wealth, your possessions, the things of this life? We need to ask ourselves that hard question, and we need to respond with a kind of radical generosity that says, I will not be, I will not let my guard down against wealth and riches in this life. And then third, Christian, are you concerned that it might not be worth it? Is there an aspect of your life where you're just wondering, I'm just not sure. I just wanna tell you, rest assured, whatever you give up to follow Jesus, when we spend eternity with him, the answer will be clear. You'll have brothers and sisters around you who are celebrating God's faithfulness in your life and it will be very clear. It was worth it every second along the way and he withheld no good thing from you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that you are true. Thank you that you care for us. God, we're just reminded in a text like this, that you are tender, you are merciful, you are kind. You withhold no good thing from us. Everything we need, we have abundantly more. And you're totally worth whatever sacrifice you call us to. God, we ask that you would rid our hearts of idols. Open our eyes to see what has a grip on our heart, and turn us away from those things, help us to hate those things, and instead find so much satisfaction, comfort, security in you that we don't need them anymore. God, help us to be a people who find everything we need in you, through you, and because of that, we're willing to sacrifice everything for you. In Jesus' name, amen.